Welcome to Oddly Influenced, a podcast for people who want to apply ideas from outside software to software. Episode 44, an interview with David Chapman about the offloaded brain. I've been working on the promised episode about what we writers of just plain apps might draw from ecological and embodied cognition. Along the way, I noticed that my authors cite work done by David Chapman and Phil Agri in the 80s, including their work on a program, Pengi, that played a video game while being as ignorant of a big-picture representation of its environment as, say, a diving gannet or a fly jumping to activate its wings or a rabbit that seems to make no connection between the smell of a carrot and any concept of carrot. Since I know David slightly, I thought I would ask him about what provoked he and Agri to go ecological before ecological cognition was cool and how Pengi worked. He agreed, and thus this episode. They took a more aggressively minimalist approach than I've been thinking of, but I think it makes a fine introduction to the ideas of Andy Clark that I'll be explaining in more detail in the next episode. It's hard to introduce David Chapman. He's a true character, the sort of polymath I aspire to be. His sprawling book, blog, epic work, meaningness.com, has given me ideas I've happily exploited over the years, with due credit, mostly. People who like this blog will likely like that site. The show notes link to a page with his greatest hits. People interested in Buddhism, especially undomesticated, non-Westernized Buddhism, will also find much interesting material. I'm not a Buddhist myself, but it was fascinating. So, 40 years ago, my association with AI, I was porting... CMU Common Lisp to Gould PowerNode Super Mini workstations. And you were, at that same time, at the, the beating heart of classical AI, that is the MIT AI Lab. And at that time, the MIT AI Lab was doing the kind of cognitive science, let's say, that the people in the books I've been talking about have been saying, no, 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 that's, that's wrong. You and your collaborator, Phil Agri, were doing the same thing. It seems to me much the same thing. Uh, back there, you were tearing down the temple from inside. And it seems that the people who write these books consider you and Phil Agri as something of progenitors or early pioneers in this area. So that's the reason I thought I would like to talk with you. I thought maybe the best way to start is by looking at the differences or the influences that you were building on and the approach you were using to thinking about AI, uh, because it seems somewhat different from what uh, my various people are doing. In particular, you mentioned to me over email that you were building on phenomenology, and ethnomethodology. Some of the authors, the more philosophically inclined authors I've been reading, do mention phenomenology, but I haven't mentioned it at all. And they certainly do not mention ethnomethodology. So 
explain, if you would, two vast fields in a few minutes. Right. And and how what it what that meant to you at the time. Yeah. So I mean it's flattering to be called progenitors. I think we were very much part of a tradition. The what was novel was that we wrote code. The ideas we had, you know, go back certainly decades and arguably many centuries. The the difference was that we we're taking that and putting it into an AI context instead of a philosophical context or a cognitive science context. So there, there's a lineage within the cognitive science context that you've probably discussed, which is early cybernetics, which had a lot of the same uh, general ideas, but they didn't have sufficient computational resources or sophistication to make models that would really do very much. We had the advantage of several decades of improvement in computation hardware and software so that we could make more sophisticated models. Phenomenology, the the relevance for us was that if you want to understand something, you just look. So one of the problems with, with cognitive science as a discipline is that it's supposed to be about what's going on inside people's heads. But for most of the history, we couldn't look inside people's heads. Uh, You know, now there's fMRI, but it's a very crude tool that's mostly misleading. So we mostly still can't look inside people's heads. So cognitive science is basically taking philosophical ideas and assuming that that must be what's going on inside people's heads. But there's various reasons for thinking that's wrong. But if we want to know something about people or other creatures, just looking at what we do instead of making hypotheses about what's inside the head that can't be tested um, gives a huge amount of insight. And uh, ethnomethodology is a discipline that grew out of phenomenology. Phenomenology was a branch of philosophy that was very abstract and theoretical. Uh, so phenomenology was the idea that you you actually look and see instead of making up stories. Um, ethnomethodology made that very much more concrete. This is going back um, to the 60s. They, they looked at first audio recordings of conversations and then video recordings of people interacting and would really microscopically dissect moment by moment what was happening and be able to have a deep understanding without reference to supposed entities inside people's heads. You can see a huge amount about the structure of how people interact and how people get practical work done this way. In our work, we basically were taking that insight and making computational models that tried to exhibit the same kinds of patterns of interaction with absolutely minimal machinery. So the whole thing in AI was making complicated, cool software that had all kinds of googaws and add-ons and complexity in order to model theories about what happened inside people's heads. And we were like, okay, what is the absolute minimum amount of complexity we can implement that will get interesting behavior. 
So you were examining your own actions, right? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any anecdotes about that? What, what sort of things did you look at? Yeah, um, breakfast is, you know, my favorite example. And if you watch yourself making breakfast, just noticing things that happen, you can see patterns. You didn't realize you were doing something The effect of what you're doing is something that you wouldn't have noticed unless you took this kind of ethnomethodological attitude of of micro-dissection. So, you know, an example is if you are a graduate student and none of your china matches because it's sort of been in a graduate student household for a long time and there's a lot of miscellaneous sets of china of which there's like one or two plates each or bowls each, um, you wind up with this stack of bowls and all the good ones are near the top. And that's not because anybody deliberately put the good bowls or, you know, the the ones that are most functional at the top. It's that you kind of pull bowls out and um, when you, you know, clean them, put them to the dishwasher and you put them back on the stack, you put them on the top. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of an automatic sorting routine that occurs according to goodness of bowls without anybody having deliberately decided to sort the bowls and without there being any representation in anybody's head of this. It's a dynamic that occurs as a result of, okay, I'll grab a bowl that looks plausible, have my cereal in it, uh, put it to the dishwasher, and then put it back at the top of the stack. Okay. And there are some... So I'm not, I'm not sure of this, but was there an emphasis on routine? Yeah. So this... We were talking just before we started recording about planning. Cognitive science is part of the rationalist tradition, which goes back to the ancient Greeks. And the rationalist tradition basically says you are or should be a rational animal, which means that you figure things out from first principles using uh, logic. And that guarantees that what what you believe and what you do is correct. So the cognitive science theory of action was a rationalist theory, which is that you have a full representation of the situation you are in, and you have some goals, and you make a logical proof that taking a specific series of actions will result in your desired goals. This theory has an enormous number of different defects. It is computationally utterly intractable is one of them. The the combinatorics are horrendous. It's not something that is realistically feasible without a whole lot of idealizations. Current hardware in the 1980s when we were working, it was just ludicrously impossible. But we also know that it can't be what people do because we often react within a small fraction of a second to emerging events, and we just couldn't be proving theorems about how logically taking such and such an action will be the correct way of dealing with this thing that just happened. The brain is slow, and that that couldn't be the right story. Mm. So the, the first observation is that what we must be doing, just reasoning from basic facts of the brain being slow, is having quite simple ways of responding to aspects of the situation 
what you might call affordances. I think you've talked about those before in this podcast series. So affordances are things you can perceive that tell you how to act, or at least tell you a possible way you can act, which is going to have a particular effect. And the way that we actually get stuff done is primarily by registering these affordances and taking the the actions that the world is recommending to us, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so the planning view is that action is orderly and structured, or sequences of actions are orderly and, and, and structured because you reason from first principle about how to accomplish your goals. The mystery in the view that our actions are mostly just taking advantage of affordances is why does that result in apparently structured patterns of behavior? And Agri's observation is, he he describes a, a routine is a pattern of interaction. And it's a pattern that may or may not be mentally represented. So the bowl sorting routine is one that I hadn't mentally represented. And at some point I noticed this is this thing that happens. And then that routine of putting the bowl back at the top of the stack and the effect that that has in producing a structured outcome, which is that the good bowls are at the top, um, which is convenient because that's where you pull them off from. And then sometimes you have a party and all the bowls get scrambled and they go back Mm. unsorted. uh, And then the, the routine kicks in and gradually the bowls get sorted again. But nobody intended that. Nobody represented that. There's no plan for that. Um, But Agri pointed out that this structure occurs despite the the absence of representation. So the question, his research question is, what can we say in general or various sort of, uh, you know, that's a very, very specific example, the bowls getting sorted. Um, What can we generalize from this? And he, he and I observed you know, phenomenologically or ethnomethodological, ethnomethodologically, we observed a lot of um, different patterns in interaction like this and then sort of tried to make some general stories about them. Okay. Another key term, and I do not know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, is deictic. Deictic, I think. Deictic. Um, I wouldn't swear that I've ever heard it pronounced properly by somebody <laughs> who knows how to say it. So in the Pinky paper, uh, we talk about indexical functional representations, which is a terrible term. The word representation is misleading there. Indexical functional is kind of a, a, a mouthful, but it does point to two important aspects. I'll come back to that in a moment. Deictic is a term from linguistics, which is in linguistics, it's essentially synonymous with indexical. But I suggested that we use it as a kind of condensation of indexical functional, and Phil agreed and we went with that. So what is indexical? Um, This is a term from linguistics that the ethnomethodological tradition picked up. An indexical expression in linguistics is one whose meaning depends on the circumstances. So the classical example is news announcers. I don't don't even know if there even are such things as TV (laughs) news announcers or so on. But when they're about to be a commercial break, they would say, and now this. This is an extremely indexical expression because what it refers to depends entirely on what the advertisement is that's coming up and the moment in which it is said. So now is 
just by itself, an indexical term, what now means is different every single time it is used. This also, what that means is dependent on context. So indexicality is the phenomenon that uh, things people say, the meanings depend on the occasion in which they say them. What we what, so what the ethnomethodologists observed is that first of all, linguistic indexicality is pervasive. It's not restricted to a handful of words like I and now and this. The meaning of basically anything you say can be completely changed if you imagine a different context. This applies to also to all of the rest of action, not just linguistic speech. So what you are doing and what effect it has and what meaning it has depends entirely on the situation in which you're doing that thing, whatever it is. So in, right, let's go back for a moment. Uh, coming out of the rationalist tradition, cognitive science imagined that inside your head, you had mental representations of a very large number of propositions, which were facts and generalizations about the world. For cognitive science, those were taken to be non-indexical. So your mental representations were not supposed to depend on anything. They were just true facts, mm -hmm. independent of circumstances. And in addition, they were supposed to be purpose independent. So grass is green. This is a fact that might be useful in lots of different ways but you just represent the fact that grass is green and it's not okay for something you believe to only be true relative to what you're up to. For a large number of reasons, this whole idea is completely wrong, but one reason is that it is computationally intractable. It is not feasible to reason with those kinds of purpose-independent and context-independent knowledge. People are still trying to do this, but it's, it just it, it doesn't work. It can't work. There's a very long list of reasons why it can't work. It's been explained very thoroughly, and the rationalist tradition in cognitive science continues to ignore this. So in Pengi, we set out to demonstrate that if you we said represent, I, I think that's kind of misleading, but if you represent the world in ways that are indexical and functional, meaning purpose-laden, then reason becomes radically more tractable. And Pengi was a program that played a video game called Pengo, which um, playing Pengo is something that was utterly beyond the state of the art in artificial intelligence at the time that we did this work because the situation was much more complex than it was feasible to represent with computers of the time in a um, non-indexical, non-purpose-laden, rationalist way. And furthermore, it was very rapidly changing and partially random. And this makes planning essentially impossible because you just don't have time, given that things are going to be constantly changing out from under you. That's probably a good place for me to describe Pengo. Let, let me describe it, and then you can correct me where, where I've got it wrong. It's a two-dimensional grid consisting of 
three kinds of objects. One object is a penguin, and another set of objects are bees, because as we all know, there's a long history of conflict between bees and penguins, faithfully captured by this game. This game represents faithfully a truth about nature, uh, similar to the grass is green, which is that bees try to kill penguins and penguins try to kill bees. The player of the game controls the penguin. The bees move around randomly or semi-randomly. And yeah, they're purposive, so they're, they're actively trying to kill the penguin, but they also randomly choose different ways they could go, and sometimes they just sort of turn around for no particular reason. Okay. And bees can kill penguins in one of two ways. If they sidle up to the penguin, if they get next to the penguin, the penguin dies. So you have to you have to run away. The other way is the bees can use the third kind of object, which are ice cubes, blocks that fill a square of the grid, and the bees can push or kick it at the penguin. And if it hits the penguin, the penguin dies and you lose the game. The way that the penguin can kill the bees is by kicking a block so that it hits the bees. So blocks will kill either bees or penguins. And that's it, right? If you manage to kill all the bees, you win. And yeah, there was some more complexity to the game, but that's uh, actually about as much as we actually got implemented. I'll mention that, you know, because it's the future, um, this is an arcade game from like 1982 or something that I recreated from memory. It, it was no longer around when I uh, did the, the implementation. I recreated it from memory rather imperfectly. Because it's the future, if you, can, you can now go to, to YouTube and see a Pengo game being played, hmm. and my recreation is somewhat inaccurate. I'll have to look that up and put a link in the show notes. Okay, so you implemented this game and wrote a program called Pengi, which pretends to be the player. So the program is not the penguin. The program is the controller of the penguin. Uh, I'd like to try to work through it. You start out frame number one, the game, it has a clock cycle that it goes through. Frame number one, you start, the penguin is somewhere randomly on the board. There are bees and blocks randomly on the board. What happens then? The program Pengi is playing the game Pengo in the same way that a human does, meaning you have visual access to the whole game board. It has a simulated visual system, and so it looks to see affordances in the paper, we call them indexical functional aspects, but affordances is, is what they are. Um, affordances are, that are relevant, so they're purpose re relative, they're relevant to the purpose of killing bees or escaping from bees. Affordances are particular configurations of blocks, penguin, and bees, such that various tactics can be deployed to either escape if threatened by a bee or to, to kill bees. The tactics may require several steps. There's a routine that you can set up a trap 
for the bee that you're currently concentrating on. The visual simulated visual system was inspired by fairly in-depth reading of what was understood about the human visual system at the time from primarily from what's called psychophysics, somewhat from uh, neurophysiology. Psychophysics is a branch of experimental psychology that figures out what's going on inside the head by looking at reaction time data primarily. And it turns out there's just absolutely brilliant work in the 70s and 80s initiated by a scientist, Ann Treisman, which figured out how um, figured out the mechanisms of visual attention. Again, the old rationalist story was somehow your brain takes the input as if from a camera and constructs from that a full logical representation of the scene. This is not true and it's not feasible. In fact, you visually attend to only typically one or a handful of areas within your visual field which are salient um, in terms of the current context and purposes. So your visual, your visual activity is indexical, functional, or deictic, and that is the way that you find affordances or that affordances become apparent to you. And so the Pengi has a fairly detailed model of what was understood about that process as of the mid-80s. So when the game starts, you might be in a situation where you, a block, and a bee are in a straight line. Right. Uh, So in the situation you mentioned, this is a dangerous situation because... If the bee is closer to the block, the bees and the penguin move at the same speed. If the bee is closer to the block, then it can get up to the block, get in your direction and smush you before you get to the block, kick it to smush the bee. So there's sort of two things that need to be registered here. First is that we're in this situation of the penguin, the block, and the bee being collinear. And then the second thing, we register the bee as uh, we could call it the enemy B. It's the one that is salient for current situation. Um, and then there's an aspect of this entity, the enemy B, which is one of two things. Either the enemy B is closer to the block or the enemy B is further from the block. And then having first identified the enemy B and then secondly registered who's closer, uh, you can take action. If the B is closer, you need to somehow get out of the way. If you are closer, then you want to run towards the block and kick it at the bee. So in those situations, the same bee, which we could say B12, in one situation, that that bee would be pointed at as the bee the penguin is going to kill. And in the other case, it would be the bee that is trying to kill me. And those are two very different things from the point of view of the penguin. Similarly, the block is going to have a pointer to it as the block I'm going to kick or the block to avoid. And so those different natures feed into the computation that determines what the penguin should do 
in the next moment. So right. we've got markers labeling things that are of interest. And then that would feed into what, if I understand it correctly, is just combinatorial, combinational network ands, ors, and nots that feed out the next thing the penguin will do, which is kick or move in a direction. That's right. The thing that's interesting here is that you don't know and you don't care the objective identity of which block this is. It could be block 12, mm -hmm. it could be block 217. The, the block I'm about to kick might be one of those at either time, and block 12 could either be the block that I need to avoid, or the, as you said, block I need to avoid, or the block that I'm going to kick it to be. Again, in the rationalist objective worldview, you know, you have to be keeping track of the absolute objective identity of every f object that you know about. And this is just an enormous amount of completely unnecessary work. Because you don't care about bees that are far away from you. Yeah, and you don't care which bee is which. What you care about is what their relationship is with you and what that implies about what you have to do. Why did you choose just to use such simple combinatorial logic? Was it like showing off, see how much yeah. we can do with how little. Yeah. I mean, it basically was going in the opposite extreme of the AI of the day. The AI of the day basically rewarded people for coming up with Baroque software architectures. And we were like, okay, what is the absolute stupidest, most minimal thing? It's feed forward logic gates. No state, there's no flip flops in there just absolutely the simplest possible thing. Is the identity, the deictic identity of a bee recalculated every frame, or is it somehow remembered from frame to frame? The, the simulated visual system can keep track of a small fixed number of objects. There was some psychophysics at the time that said that we could track, I don't know, six or something. And the, the visual system puts markers in places the program has determined are interesting. So, for example, the enemy B gets a marker on it. That state is in the visual system rather than in the central system. As things move, the visual system moves the marker. So that is done frame by frame. The visual system also returns measurements of various things. So for example, the distance from one marker to another. And so it is recal it again is recalculating on every frame what the comparative distances are between the the penguin, the block, and the bee. The what we call the central system, which is deciding how to act, doesn't have any memory. You know, every tick, the world reappears to it. Uh, as a set of Boolean values output by the visual system, those uh, flow forward through the combinatorial logic network and output the Boolean values that say which direction to move in and whether or not to be kicking. Okay, so the interesting thing is that the all the memory is just in the visual system, yes. and it's not something that is anything like what we would call in intelligent. It's the same sort of principle that if a bird flies behind a tree trunk, 
when it comes out the other side, you know it's the same bird. The claim of Pengi is that there's no reasoning going on that says this object moving on the left-hand side of the tree is the same object that moved toward the tree from the right-hand side. It's all just kind of automatically registered. Yes. Okay. Now, if it is the case that this is going to be very hard to describe purely audibly, but there's a bee up kind of to the right, there's a block that's kind of below the bee, there's another block that's in line with that block horizontally. So if you kick that block to slide over into the other block, it'll stop because they just stop when they hit things. There's no momentum or anything. So the block will slide over, stop vertically below the bee. While it's sliding, you can be creeping down below it. So you've now created a situation where the bee is vertically above the block, farther away from the block than you are from the block. So now you've established the situation where you can kick the bee, kick the block to hit the bee. Unless, of course, the bee has moved, which it seems like it would, but let's suppose the bee hasn't moved. Now, what I've just described is a plan. That's something I might think, uh, given this situation, here's how I could do it. But in Pengi, there is no plan. So can you say something about how that would work? Yeah. So, I mean, this is an affordance. The particular configuration of blocks that you described, which is probably difficult for listeners to visualize, but there is a particular geometrical configuration of blocks such that a series of actions, basically three of them, first kicking the, the projectile you're going to use to kill the bee into place, uh, you chase after that ice cube or block, um, and then you kick it at the bee. That geometrical configuration is one that the central system can instruct the visual system to notice. And when the visual system notices this configuration, it, it, I'm sort of um, sliding over a lot of detail here, but it essentially informs the central system that, oh, this affordance is available. And then the central system says, oh, so now I can do this thing. And it's doing that thing not as part of a plan. Right. So actually, so what the the visual system says, hey, you've got this affordance and the central system just says, oh, in this configuration, I do the thing that we could call the first step of the plan. And then there's a different configuration, which corresponds to the last step of the plan, which is the one where the, the block is in line with the B so that the B is vulnerable. But in that initial configuration, the central system only needs to know to do what we could call the first step of the plan, but there isn't a plan. It just knows in this when this affordance is, is active or available, then I do this thing. And there's an advantage to this, which is that, as you said, the B is not going to cooperate a lot of the time. It's going to move out of the way and then partway through this routine, it's not a plan, it's a routine, it's a pattern. Partway through the pattern, the pattern disintegrates because the bee has randomly moved off in some direction that 
means the affordance no longer applies. And then as soon as that happens, the visual system ceases saying, hey, this, this configuration is available. And so the central system at that point just drops the whole thing. It doesn't need to say, oh, uh, you know, my plan failed. I need to come up with a new plan. That doesn't It doesn't happen. drop the whole thing because it never held the thing in the yes. first place. Right. So there never was a plan. Here's an interesting, well, I think it's interesting, an interesting example of, of something very similar that happens in nature. There is one of those disgusting parasitic wasps called a bee wolf. And what they do is they capture, sting, paralyze bees of various species, and they lay their eggs on these bees. And then the larvae eat the paralyzed bee and grow up to be more wasps that can kill more bees. This is post-interview Brian interrupting. I completely botched the explanation here, especially by saying wasp when I meant bee and vice versa, which made everything confusing. So here I'll say what I should have said. These wasps don't put paralyzed bees just anywhere before laying their eggs. Instead, the mommy wasp digs a tunnel up to a meter long with a number of side passages. Those passages lead to chambers. Each chamber is the home to, I think, a single larva and up to six paralyzed bees. The wasp seems to be following a plan. When it's paralyzed a bee, it carries it back to the mouth of the main tunnel. It leaves the bee next to the entrance hole while it goes down to prepare the chamber. Then the wasp comes up, grabs the bee, and drags it down into the chamber. And so some biologists with nothing better to do with their lives than torment wasps do this game where they wait for the wasp to be down working on the chamber and then grab the bee and move it away from the entrance. And the wasp comes out, but there's no bee there. At this point, I think it best to resume with what I originally recorded, starting just after the wasp fails to find the bee. Be aware that I confuse bees and wasps twice more, but we'll have a special guest appearance by dawn to make corrections. That triggers behavior where it searches for the wasp, for the bee, finds the paralyzed bee, it moves it back to the hole, and then it goes back down and prepares the chamber that it already prepared because bee next to hole is putting in the environment, the affordance for the next step of the quote-unquote plan, which is to prepare the chamber. So the bee looks like it has a step-by-step -step plan. No, dear. It's the wasp that looks like it has the step-by-step -step plan. But in fact, all it's doing is at every step of the way, it installs in its environment an affordance to cause the next step. Which yes. Which sounds that's, that's dumb. Very similar. Hmm? It sounds dumb of the wasp, but realistically, evolutionarily, how often do wasps run into biologists who like to move their bees? Yeah. Must happen. It must happen sometime because <laughs> they do have this pattern of I have prepared, I come up, no bee, institute a search pattern to find the bee. So maybe. I guess bees maybe get blown by the wind or something. And so they have a the affordance of come up, find wasp. Bee. 
causes the direct action drag wasp B down, whereas the affordance come up no wasp, come up no B has the affordance institute a search routine. And so your claim and Filagri's claim and the claim of various people like Andy Clark is that a lot of our seemingly intelligent behavior is like that. It's not planned. It's dropping affordances in our environment or in our body, our bodily configuration that prompt the next activity. And as you say, that's convenient because you don't have to check to see if the plan is going according to plan. You just do the next thing, whatever the next thing the environment tells you to do is. Yep. And I don't actually have any more questions about Pengi. Oh, I actually do. How good was Pengi? Um, it was superhumanly good in some ways and terrible in others. Mm. It was superhumanly good because it actually could track moving more moving objects better than people can. So it was unrealistically visually apt. apt. It was much less good than a reasonably competent human player. We did not implement a very large number of these affordances and what action to take based on the affordance. We were expecting that after the Pengi paper was published, we would do a lot more work to flesh out those. Uh, For various reasons that I can't fully remember, that didn't happen. I think the main thing was Phil was under time pressure to complete a PhD and I wanted to take the research in a slightly different direction. And so we abandoned Pengi without its having a very large repertoire of routines. Another question, how easy was Pengi to maintain, to extend, to work with compared to your average program and perhaps compared to some of these overly elaborate conventional AI programs? Uh... So the culture of AI at the time was that basically you threw together code that minimally illustrated whatever point you were trying to make and principles of software engineering to the extent that they were understood at the time were utterly ignored. So it's a bit difficult to answer that question because maintenance was a total non-thing and the code was, it would be covered in comments, you know, of the, you know, to do colon, make this not be an utter kludge. There's a, a big pile of Lisp code that was quite unlike anything anybody had ever written before. So hmm. it was a big pile of kludges. Okay. Uh, do you have any other comments for the listenership? No, I um, I guess I can say I've, I didn't realize you had a podcast until you contacted me a week or two ago, and I've listened to several episodes and really enjoyed them. So I can recommend to anyone who's listening just to this episode that they check out other ones. Oh, well, I will definitely leave that in. Uh, okay. Well, uh, thank you for, for talking to me. Sure. It's been fun. Mm-hmm.